Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, here's a confession for you. Behind this resolute exterior, I will admit occasionally to moments of self-doubt. And I bring this up because on last episode, I think you said Kyrie Irving made you think twice about whether the world was round and could be photographed from space. That got me a little concerned. But look, I have doubts myself. And you'll remember during the Eric Bledsoe affair, we were killing the Suns. In particular, Ryan McDonough. But in general, we were taking the Suns to task. We suggested, or at least I suggested, they should probably sell the team owner, Robert Sarver. Uh, We questioned their handling of Bledsoe all the way through. But there was one moment, I will admit, one moment where I started to feel a little guilty about saying McDonough might ride around on a miniature pony version of a high horse, that he might actually have something up his sleeve. And that moment came when he did an interview with Arizona Sports 98.7 FM local sports radio interview, right in the middle of all this saga as he was tearing down Bledsoe as a leader and and all these other criticisms he was throwing out there. McDonough says this, quote, we've gotten some pretty good offers, especially in the last 24 hours or so. We're comfortable with the offers we're getting. There are a few teams in particular that are being pretty aggressive. Contrary to what you might have heard or read, there is a strong market for Eric Bledsoe I think we heard from all 29 teams at this point. So McDonough was projecting strength. And that had me a little shook, Andrew, because remember, we were giggling about whether he could even get Moutier, right? (laughs) I mean, that's where we put it. I didn't want Milwaukee to give up uh, Malcolm Brogdon. I was laughing at you for even suggesting Jabari Parker. And at that moment, I froze. Yes. I froze up. I said, "Uh uh-oh, does McDonough have something in his back pocket? Did he have something in his back pocket, Andrew? I don't think so. I think Ryan McDonough actually did worse than Moutier. Greg Monroe, some crazy, heavily protected first-round pick, like a top 48 protected second-round pick. This guy got nothing. He sold low. Everyone called his bluff. He got nothing. You know what, man? I don't think he did as bad as you're making it sound. He clearly mismanaged the situation for the last two years. And so everything should be seen through that lens. But given how poorly things went over the first three weeks of the season, I think a lot of people are okay with the return the Suns got. But I recognize that this has been a personal crusade for you for the last three or four years. (laughs) So I'm just going to let you live and claim this victory. And it's fine. You know, I, I don't really have a passionate take about the Suns. At this point in the year, I think our son's criticism peaked when you demanded that they give season ticket holders a refund, which is still amazing. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like they well, did, here's they the did thing, fine. though, Andrew. We expected we expected pennies on the dollar. I mean, that's where our baseline was. We went through all the reasons why they ran Bledsoe's trade value and through the ground. But still, we expected them to get either a some level of young prospect that they could sell to their fan base as part of this great youth movement core they're trying to build, quote unquote, or a solid pick. 
Did he bring either one of these things home? Not unless that pick just doesn't convey for like three years. Then, you know, at some point in like 2020, that could be a good pick. I mean, I guess uh, so. But-, but he didn't bring home anything that he wanted. I mean, are you trying? Don't try to sell me Greg Monroe is going to be helpful to All Phoenix. Right. Is that what you're about to <laughs> no, do? Don't even go down. I'm going to let us do another like three to four minutes on the Suns and the other teams that might have traded for Bledsoe. So I'm going to I'm going to get into the questions here because we've got a lot to get through today, and we're working with a tight out because I have to go see Wizards Lakers uh, tonight. So Trey says, not that I really care, but could the Suns really not find more than Greg Monroe? And how could the Cavs see? not make a deal for Bledsoe with, with Tristan Thompson? Such a weird trade. By the way, Denver misses out on another good point guard, which is all they need. Who the hell is managing these teams? Um, to answer your question and Trey's question, I don't know. Like Greg Monroe is just sort of salary filler for that deal. And getting a pick in the middle of the first round, which is probably where it's going to end up either this year or over the next few years, is an okay return when you consider how bad everything had gotten. You know what I mean? Like there I was I was surprised that they got a first round pick at all because they had absolutely no leverage. Bledsoe he got traded the day that he was going to go show up at the facility and just work out and make everything uncomfortable for everyone. So I think that all things considered, it's an okay return for Phoenix. Yeah, it really sounds like you've got a couple of pennies and you're shining them up real nice. And you're trying to tell me how <laughs> great the three pennies are compared to the dollar well, look, of the player in his no, prime. No, no, no. We've been over. They've mismanaged the last five years. Playmaker. I'm not I'm not here to defend Ryan McDonough's overall tenure in Phoenix. I'm just saying that given where they were, it this is fine. I the the one question I have is why wouldn't the Nuggets give up more to try to make this happen? Because they they're a oh, team I, that seems like they're I have that all same in. question. Oh, I'm with you on that. I don't really get it. If this was the price, I mean, come on, like figure out how to do it. Uh, By the way, he also did not attach any other dead salary to Bledsoe, which would be something rebuilding teams or teams that are trying to have a youth movement would try to do too. So he basically struck out on what most executives would try to do in that situation. You're trying hard to sell me on this pick being magical. You <laughs> no, know it's not. I just don't really I, care. You're just playing devil's advocate. <laughs> I just I don't have enough energy to care about the Suns. We've already done two more Suns-themed podcasts than I ever would have expected this season. So I'm, I'm out. All right. The moral of the story here is don't have the self-doubt if Ryan McDonough is the one who's up there on the stage <laughs> talking about his great offers. The guy's got no offers. Okay. Uh, can we move on to the Bucks side of this? And we just like, oh, of we don't have, we don't know exactly what the Nuggets did or didn't offer. We don't know what the Cavs did or didn't offer. Um, I mean, the, Tristan Thompson has extra years on that deal. So I think he would have been less attractive than someone like Greg Monroe. Uh, but still, it, it, I I would be curious to know what Cleveland offered, and I'm mad at the Nuggets. I'm double mad at the Nuggets. I'm still mad at them for not bringing in Milos Teodosic, and I am mad at them for not uh, throwing their hat in the Bledsoe sweepstakes. But I will say I'm happy for the Milwaukee Bucks. So Greg says, hey, guys, congrats on your big week. After over a year of wishing Bledsoe onto the Bucks." You finally spoke it into existence like less cool versions of LeVar Ball. I know Ben was already insanely high on the Bucks, but does this move make them a top two seed in AAA? 
Um, I would say that we're not we're we might be cooler versions of LeVar Ball. Um, I don't want to give us too much credit, but I feel like LeVar Ball is a pretty low bar. Um, what do you think of the Bucks though at this point? Well, I think first of all, let's clarify for Greg. You deserve the credit for speaking this into existence. <laughs> you were the one who was banging on the Bledsoe to the Bucks drum for years, and I sort of went along with it. But the only credit I want to take is for like really making sure that they didn't put out a real offer because the whole Jabari thing, the Brogdon thing, like Bledsoe's fit in Milwaukee makes so much more sense keeping those guys around and having this team that uh, can potentially grow together for a couple of years. Having a marginal upgrade, like from a Brogdon to a Bledsoe, you know, even if that might not really even be an upgrade uh, when you look at the fit-wise, doesn't make nearly as much sense for them as having both those guys in the fold. Uh, so, you know, I, I was sort of the the bad cop in the negotiations, but I think you're the good cop for seeing this through uh, to existence. So, congratulations. Uh, I like the piece that you wrote about uh, the Bledsoe trade because you brought up basically the puberty ball lineup, which is Giannis at center. Middleton, uh, you know, Bledsoe, Brogdon, and I guess Snell could be the fifth. Mm -hmm. That is a wild lineup that would cause problems for lots of people. So pressure is on now, Jason Kidd. I mean, don't you think that's really where this goes is this was a management move to either uh, placate Kidd saying, hey, I don't have enough talent. That's why we're losing games. We need some more playmakers here. Keep Giannis happy by adding uh, another guy who can uh, really lead things when he's off the court and, and be a secondary you know playmaker in the half court. Uh, but I think also it's uh, it's time to win. You know, it kind of puts a little bit more onus on the on the coaching staff. You guys can't have the second worst defense in the league anymore. You can't have this good but not great offense. There's enough to win here. Uh, and I think we should keep our scrutiny on their coach. Yeah, it's interesting. I talked to somebody earlier this week um, with another team who said, that basically, like, this is a good deal, but it's it, it's sort of a double-edged sword because, at the, like, what they really need to do is fire Jason Kidd and that coaching staff, and, uh, and this sort of delays that ultimate solution. But I kind of come at it from a different perspective where I, I agree with you where I think now it removes an excuse for Kidd. Because the, the, the one thing you could say about Kidd is that he was working with a roster that was designed before the Bucks really had any idea what Giannis was going to turn into. Um, and I think now, like, he's probably the most dominant big man in basketball. Um, granted, he doesn't really play like a traditional big man, but, like, the roster had four or five big men on it the last two years. And... Um, so he was working with kind of a, a weird mix there. And now the, the team is going to make a lot more sense. And Kid's going to have to go out and sort of prove that he's the right coach. And the one thing that we didn't talk about, which a couple Bucks fans mentioned um, last week when we talked about Kid, is like the defense really has been a mess. Uh, for And it's gotten progressively worse over the last few years. So this is like my skepticism with kid has always been that like, there's not really ever been much evidence that he makes teams better. And he's like, not necessarily a bottom five coach, but he's probably not in the top 15 either. And that's not who you want with Giannis. So we're going to see what, what he can really do this year. And I think that's, that's half the value of the Bledsoe deal for me is that look like now, now that the team makes sense, and has a real shot at succeeding, 
the the front office and the ownership are going to get to see like can, is Thon Maker actually good? Like are are some of these pieces long term fits or do we need to upgrade elsewhere? And uh, so it'll it'll give everybody out there just a more accurate look at what they need going forward. Yeah, and I just think it's put up or shut up time for a kid because you look at their structure. I mean, now that they don't have Hammond, who that's sort of like a basketball life or a younger front office, very inexperienced ownership group that's kind of had some stumbles and bumbles early. Like when you're having these basketball conversations, everyone's in a room. I imagine Jason Kidd's voice carries a long way in those exactly. groups because you know, he, he's a Hall of Fame level player. He's a guy who's been in the NBA, knows everyone, well-connected, well-respected, uh, and by the way, know, for the last two decades, that makes him difficult to fire. I mean, it's hard to be that, like that's what John I'm Horst, who that, I think is that's like 33 why... years old or something. I mean, he's in his 30s. It's hard to sit there and be like, all right, kid, you're not the answer. So I, I don't envy someone having to go through that process, but it may be the ultimate solution when we get to the end of this, uh, this yeah. season. Yeah, or even imagine you're a New York hedge fund manager who just likes basketball, mm-hmm. right? And you go out of your way spending all this money to poach Jason Kidd, and you know it really hasn't worked out that well. If this season just kind of continues, you know, petering along, where they're not in that top four in the East, uh, maybe this level of investment in terms of pulling the trigger on an early trade like this gets them thinking twice about you know where Kidd should. Uh, be in that organization and by the way like if they did fire him don't you think a lot of coaches would be looking at that job like wow there's a lot of upside potential here like this is a this is the type of job that could make your career if you're the one who figures out how to unlock Giannis you know if you're the Phil Jackson Zen master who comes along uh, like after Doug Collins uh, absolutely I mean that's and that's part of the value of having Bledsoe there now too is that now there are more pieces to work with and it makes the Bucks a more attractive destination for other free agents, for coaches. And the one thing a couple people have worried about whether Bledsoe is essentially like a year and a half rental and whether it would make sense to pay him big money when he's 30 years old and given the injury history. And I, that's a completely fair thing to wonder about, but I also... Part of me thinks that like a year and a half from now, I'm not sure what the market is going to be for Eric Bledsoe because most of these teams are set at point guard, and I don't know if somebody's going to want to pay him a hundred million dollars to come be their starting point guard because he's like he's in that nebulous zone where he's like not an all star really, but he's he's also very good. But I like he's somewhere between 10 and 20 as far as like starting point guards in the league. And so they may be able to keep him for a, on a better deal than you might think. Um, so I, that's just something I've seen on Twitter, like people kind of complaining about the bucks sort of winning now and not caring about the future. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't cross that bridge until you get there. No, he's not paid enough money to be in a situation where you're mortgaging the future. And look, this is a rental economy, man. Yeah. The, the NBA, you got like 15, 20 guys who matter, who aren't rentals. Everybody else is rentals. I mean, I'm sure you could do some crazy like stretch metaphor with like Uber and Airbnb and all this, but basically everybody's <laughs> just cycling like crazy now uh, until they find a home that sort of makes sense. I mean, the contract lengths are shorter. Uh, even stars, you know, second tier stars are moving constantly. I mean, Paul George and DeMarcus Cousins just moved last year, and you can make strong arguments they should move 
Again, here at the yeah. deadline, you know, both of those guys. So, yeah, I, I think that is not something to be, uh, you know, too concerned about. I think the bigger concern really is just balance of touches. Uh, I really want Giannis in that, you know, lead playmaking role as often as possible. I'm not totally convinced that Bledsoe is someone who can make his life easier in the half court. I guess I just want to see that first. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it will happen. Um uh, uh, that, that's my biggest concern. But I do love the idea that they now have someone where they can uh, you know, split their minutes. So there's always one of those guys on the court. I think it will allow Giannis to play slightly fewer minutes because the offense was just completely falling apart when he was uh, off the court. Uh, you know, Kidd was forced to run up his minutes basically every single night. Now you've got kind of a tentpole player uh, who can you know, lead, lead the team uh, during those stretches. Can we talk about Jabari and what they what the options are there because that's the one thing adding Bledsoe's salary to next year's cap in Milwaukee makes the Jabari contract a little bit more complicated and I don't know I mean I don't even I have no idea how Bucks fans feel about it I have no idea how other people around the league feel about it but to me like Jabari and Giannis are both kind of best playing the four and Jabari needs a lot of touches to be successful his defense has been pretty bad throughout his career we have no idea what he's going to look like coming back uh off that second knee injury like I don't know I I don't want to say the Bucks need to trade Jabari but to me that's an opportunity where they could maybe attach like Delhi's contract to Jabari and just try to sort of free up some flexibility going forward yeah you're getting hung up on these positions a little too much for my liking didn't we explain last episode how taco bell was basically interchangeable yes. so what you're doing when you say they both are best at the four it's like you're saying well you know a chalupa and a soft taco you know they're both they're both best with you know tomatoes and, and no. lettuce and cheese well you yeah. No, what I'm telling I mean, you is matter. that I've watched a lot of Bucks games, particularly in the first half of last year, and they like the chemistry between those two isn't great. It's not horrible. It's not like Giannis and Greg Monroe, but it's not seamless. And I just don't know if you need to like commit to him as as the sidekick of the future. I think they might be able to find better options out there. But that I'll I'll admit the idea of trading Jabari is much riskier and scarier than trading Greg Monroe and like a meaningless first rounder for uh, Eric Bledsoe. So, okay, that's a different concern. If the concern is they haven't really gelled and found the right chemistry and maybe they're not perfectly complementary, that's one concern. Play They play the same position. To me, that's not a concern okay. because they're both pretty interchangeable guys. Neither one, I mean, it's not like they're two seven foot four giants out there or they're two five foot nine point guards. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's, uh, it's almost a good problem to have. You could say that that would be an asset that they both play the same position because then you can use them kind of interchangeably and together and you know, really create a lot of like mismatch situations. My concerns about Jabari, obviously the health. The multiple ACLs thing hasn't really gotten enough talk. I think there's some people who just assume he's going to come back midseason, play pretty well, and just pick up like you know right where he left off and then cash out like a hundred million dollar contract. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's going to be that simple. Uh, I think uh, he was pretty slow coming back from the first one, at least in terms of getting his numbers back up. There's usually a delay where you wouldn't expect really until next season being the time that he kind of gets back to where you expect. 
And then this was already a guy who, you know, he didn't exactly have like crazy athleticism to spare, at least not in my eyes. He was a very capable scorer. Uh, but defensively, I thought, you know, sometimes uh, he could have been quicker side to side. He's not exactly imposing. So I think his defensive limitations are really going to come through after the second surgery. Uh, that's going to be a limiting factor potentially on his overall value in the, in the next contract he signs. I think, um, you know, if you're not paying him off of, uh, you know, his potential to grow into this all-star player, you know, how much are you really going to be willing to pay him? I, I think that's an open question. So, yeah, it's just something, uh, it's interesting to watch. It basically, like, if you look at the big picture, there have been a lot of people who said that the Bucks their opportunity to build around Giannis came with that number two pick and it hasn't totally worked out with Jabari and it may not work out in the future. And so there are certain people who are kind of glass half empty on what's possible. And I think that one way for Jabari to help is as a, as a trade chip that then gives them more flexibility to build around him with pieces that fit better. But yeah, I just don't. I don't think you can trade him by February in any deal and get anything back of value. I don't know if you yeah, need I think anything. He, it's back. too theoretical at this point. Yeah, I don't know if. You, oh, you're just. Gonna, <laughs> you can't salary dump Jabari off a rookie contract. I'm not. I'm not salary about. dumping Jabari. I'm using him him as the piece to send Matthew Della Vadova to like Chicago or something. I don't know. It's just a thought, and I don't want to sound too grim about the Bucks, but this is like. We've been pretty granular, but I think both you and I are now all in on Giannis the next few years. So we care, man. You know, we're invested. The The only other thing I wanted to Look. say on this trade, um, there are two things. First of all, I love the Bucks giving up that first round pick this year. I think more good teams should trade first round picks. That's a little bit of a hot take, I guess. But like... The value, the difference in value between the middle of the first round and the first 10 or 15 picks of the second round is not very big. And I think that if you're a team that's trying to contend, those those first round picks should be trade chips and you should be looking to build with whoever you can steal in the second round. Like the Bucks had Brogdon. They sold their pick that became Pat McCaw uh, to the Warriors two years ago. But like that's how the smart teams are building these days. As the chief marketing officer of Giannis Inc., I just <laughs> want to get it out there that it's this is not an emotional attachment uh, on my end towards Jabari. I will feel free to cut him loose at the first possible moment. It will help Giannis ascend to greatness. Right. I promise you that. I just think the right strategy right now is to let him play out this entire season, get back, get comfortable. Don't like put that much pressure in terms of minutes and roll on him, ease him back in lightly. Uh, this is a team, uh, as the initial, uh, initial questioner asked, you know, that, that should be a home court playoff team, potentially, at least in theory, uh, with or without Jabari to me. You know, I, I'm not sure he's this major game changer. They actually played, uh, it was pretty close last year. I think they played uh, maybe even better without him than they played with mm-hmm. him. So, and he looked uh, great let while he was healthy. He looked in. great for what Jabari does. He was yeah. already like he had turned a corner. He had he had more burst than I think he had for the first couple seasons. And like, it's not that he can't succeed in the NBA. It's just whether Milwaukee is the right fit. Can I tell you one more story about Bledsoe to the Bucks? Yes. Okay. So 
You may have seen earlier this week when the deal went down, I tweeted out an old Grantland story from like 2014 um, where I said we need to get Eric Bledsoe to the Bucks. And so this this has been like a, a several years journey for me. And um, the way I ended that story, that was like it dropped in like the middle of September. Nobody was really even talking about the NBA. But I made the case that the Bucks needed to trade for Bledsoe. I think I, I think I said they needed to trade Brandon Knight for Bledsoe because Knight was just not the guy to me. Um, I was proven right on that one. And uh, so what happened was I made that case. And at the end of the post, I said, this probably won't happen. Just dream with me. And then forward this idea to John Hammond over and over again until it really happens. And the article came out. There was a a decent response because there was nothing happening in the NBA. So people wanted to talk about it. And then later that afternoon, someone with the Bucks got in touch with me and was like, what's your cell phone number? And I was like, am I in trouble? Like, what's happening here? And so I sent it back. And then John Hammond called me. And this is before I had ever done any real reporting. I was pretty much just blogging at that point. And John Hammond called me and we we talked for like 10 or 15 minutes just about Eric Bledsoe and whether the Bucks should trade for him. Well... You never know how influential we might be here on the Open Floor Podcast. <laughs> we actually might be the people who made this deal happen, really from both sides, if you think about it. I mean, you've been encouraging uh, you've been encouraging Milwaukee for, what, three years, yeah. as you just detailed. On the Phoenix side, uh, clearly we've had strong feelings about how they should get him out of town and how they just have to do it. Um, yeah, if, if you want to just kind of hold hands and run around the track for our victory lap, I'm okay with totally. that. Totally. Uh, I did give you credit, by the way, earlier for making the deal before you launched into that story, but you had to come back around <laughs> and get it twice. Well, I hate, I, I'm not hating. I, I understand. I get To my it. knowledge, I don't think I've ever told that story before, but it was really cool. And we just went back and forth and I tried to be respectful about Brandon Knight. Um, and it was a, it was a fun little exchange and it's something that John Hammond definitely did not have to do. But he said that like what had ha- what happened was that Bucks fans had literally been forwarding him that story all day. So he finally asked asked for my number and reached out and uh it was cool. So it's a victory for all of us. I cannot wait to see how Bledsoe looks in Milwaukee and uh you know, we'll see. But should we move on to the Celtics here? We've got an- another victory lap no, from Celtics fans. We could probably do another half an hour on the Suns and Bucks. Everybody's two <laughs> favorite teams. But yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Let's uh, let's consider some other one of the other 28 squads. Out. All right. So Adam says, hey, guys, big fan of the podcast. If you guys are very much woke, what are the chances Kyrie wins MVP, especially if the Celtics win 60 games and have the number one seed? If Steph Curry can win averaging 23 and 6 in 2015, why can't Kyrie? What do you think? Can I make a prediction? What? I think Kyrie's got a pretty strong MVP case that will be fairly well lasting if they keep playing like this. I think he's going to be one of those guys who's just on that top five short list. Um, going forward for a lot of the season if if this keeps up or anything close to this keeps up i think someone out there is going to write the column that character counts and you can't be the mvp (laughs) if you're brainwashing the youth 
I think that's coming. I don't know exactly who I think is going to write that call, but we've seen some pretty insane awards takes over the years. Somebody had a anti-Draymond take at one point, I think. I can't remember if it was because of uh, his on-court behavior or maybe something to do with the officials or whatever it was, but it got a little personal, a little strangely personal against Draymond uh, for Defensive Player of the Year. I'm wondering if someone is just going to go all out against the flat earth stuff and just say, look, he might be brilliant on the court, but this guy is leading our youth astray and we cannot in good conscience vote for him for MVP. Could that happen? You know, I've thought about it and I really, I've been on the record as not being offended by Kyrie's stance, but I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of him winning MVP and the NBA having a flat earther MVP. So I like, I don't even think... <laughs> so you might write the column yeah. that I'm imagining here. Is that what you're a saying? A little bit. It might be like, all right, Kyrie, you're the best player in basketball this year. You get MVP, but cut out this flat earther shit. This is unacceptable. You're a representative of the league now. Okay. I now want to walk away from that take that I just had because we have spent too much time on this podcast clowning Kyrie for the off-court stuff and not enough time giving him credit for what he's doing on the court. Uh-huh. He's playing very well. And I'm sure you're going to come back at me and say, oh, it's still part of the Boston hype machine. Yes, he might not be like the greatest player ever in NBA history, which, you know, in some circles of the, uh, you know, the Massachusetts media, that's well, how he's being made out. No, all right, look. <laughs> They're playing very well. He's off to a really nice start. And we questioned his leadership. We questioned, can he be the guy who holds it together after the Gordon Hayward injury? Can he be the guy who, uh, you know, balances and, you know, young guys kind of look up to? Can he lead by example on the defensive end? Can he make his teammates better uh, and keep role players involved? Uh, we, at least, I, I shouldn't say we, I expected individual brilliance from Kyrie this season, mm-hmm. 100%. I have seen stuff from Kyrie that I have never seen from him previous in his career, whether it's night-to-night defensive commitment, whether it is, uh, you know, playmaking, running an offense, keeping five guys, uh, you know, in tune with each other, just the flow aspect on offense. That really was not the case uh, with him in that role at any point during his Cleveland tenure with or without LeBron. And if I'm LeBron, I'm definitely posting Arthur memes with balled up (laughs) fists saying, where was this Kyrie? For the last three or four years, I've been looking for this guy. What happened? Yeah, I don't know. I have a couple different reactions to what's happening with Kyrie right now. Um, first of all, I don't disagree with anything you said there. He is playing exceptionally well, and the Celtics are playing really well, um, which, again, we both sort of ex- expected. Um, we did have an emailer write in quoting me over the summer saying I'd rather have Paul George than Kyrie Irving as like sort of a he's I think he said like never forget and I I don't know I first of all don't agree with that now um if Kyrie is the only star on your team I'd rather have Kyrie but if you're talking about a team with multiple stars I I think it's still pretty close I don't I it's it's been three weeks basically it's probably a little too early to declare Kyrie the victor but I might be wrong on that too I mean Kyrie's been really really good well slow down slow down you'd rather have Kyrie with Brad Stevens than Paul George with Russell Westbrook exactly that's That's, that's what I'm saying not exactly a fair the idea like there have been a couple Boston fans who have framed that as like a hot take from me and it's not it's just it's an interesting basketball question with two guys who are very close in the second tier of superstars in the NBA 
And with Kyrie, what bugs me is that people are acting like it's he's Steph Curry all of a sudden, and I don't quite see it. I, like he is playing smarter than he has, and he's been more consistent. Um, his shooting is sort of quietly streaky. Uh, like Al Horford has been more impressive to me through the first couple weeks than Kyrie has. So like he's good, but the idea that he's suddenly transformed is a little crazy to me. And it just seems like they're both side, like everyone's sort of in the honeymoon period with Kyrie in Boston right now. Yeah. I think sometimes when players improve or they do take meaningful steps forward, or they do benefit from an improved environment, all of which I think applies to Kyrie, uh, in terms of his, the perception of his individual game, it's just so much easier to see, uh, how well he's playing without LeBron there. Yeah. Uh, you know, without that shadow and then with Stevens and an offense that really lets him do what he wants and, and brings the best out of him. I think there is a tendency for people who are upset at criticism of their favorite player or a guy they follow closely to view improvement uh, as proof that the criticism was incorrect. No, <laughs> that's not how it works. You can't rewrite history. Like The things that he's improved on, uh, the reason why we can judge that improvement is because that's not how it was in the past, right? Like He wasn't locked in night-to-night -night defensively for years. Just because he's done that now for a month doesn't mean we have to go back and say, oh, we were wrong about Kyrie's defense or we were wrong about uh, you know, how, how well he can lead an offense as the main guy and how he can make his teammates better. Yeah. Uh, we, we, sh we, to be honest, we need to come out here on this podcast, which I think we're doing and say, look, he has made that progress. Give him credit for it now. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we have to take back anything we said about him previously. Yeah. Well, and if you're defending the Celtics deal this summer, first of all, none of us, as we analyze that trade, had any idea how bad Isaiah's health was. And the second thing that you can definitely say is that Kyrie has a skill that is super valuable at a championship level. And so going and grabbing another star to put alongside Kyrie, Tatum, and Hayward, like that makes sense. Um, but the idea that Kyrie is like himself the transcendent star who's going to make them, who's going to like put them on a, on a championship level, I'm not really sold on that. Um, one other question. Yeah, and I and also I, I don't think we should say, oh, Cleveland had a bad trade offer. If Kyrie wanted out, they had to trade him. We've been through this. How many point guards uh, were available? And then what were their other needs? Would you rather have Isaiah and Jay Crowder to go against Golden State in the finals next year or Eric Bledsoe, right? Like that might have been the only other like you know, above average point guard who was even on the market for them to to try to uh, trade Kyrie for. And if Kyrie doesn't want to go to Phoenix, as sort of recent reports or scuttlebutt indicates, maybe you can't even get Eric Bledsoe, right? So uh, their options were limited. I still think Cleveland's side of the trade was fine. They just shouldn't have let it get to the point where Kyrie wanted out so badly and that he was willing to push uh, to get out. I mean, that's really where the well, ownership and that uh, front office leadership kind of went astray. Credit to Kyrie, though. He learned how to play chess from LeBron, and he played this brilliantly. Like, he's in a great situation, and this is this is going to be a great year for him individually. So, I like, I'm happy for him in that respect. Um, rather than running it back with that depressing Cavs team, this is a, a great move from him. I do want to talk about uh, the Celtics from a from a broader standpoint. So Joshua says, as a longtime listener, first-time emailer, and diehard Boston fan, 
Where do you see the Celtics' next loss? Warriors on November 16th. Raptors November 12th. Neither. Also, do you have any love for the Celtics in the finals, or do we have to wait until their next Cleveland matchup? As a biased observer, even I can see that they're benefiting from a pretty easy schedule. So how good do you think this Celtics team actually is? Well, they almost lost the Lakers the other night. Like, I don't know if we need to be like forecasting a month straight of <laughs> victories more for them. I mean, <laughs> I think we could chill. Uh, no, I mean, I think coming in, especially after the Hayward injury, I anticipated they were going to slip into sort of the middle portion of that um, playoff field. They look to me locked in like a top three seed. I mean, yeah. things are going really well for them. You know, let let's see, let's reserve judgment, but. Yeah, give them full credit. I mean, they handled a very, very tough situation very well. This has sort of been their best case scenario. That has me a little bit nervous just because, uh, you know, how long or how often do teams really play at their best case scenario all season long? Uh, But I would still take Cleveland over them in a series uh, pretty handily, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly because of the Hayward injury. You know, you can't throw Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and Tatum at LeBron in the Eastern Conference Finals. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's... I mean, they're going to be a great regular season team and the playoffs will be sort of an interesting test for them because to to this point, I think that the story, the story is going to be about Kyrie and he's going to be an MVP candidate. Like we've talked about how through the first couple of weeks of the season, some of these, some of these like early weird trends, like Ricky Rubio suddenly becoming a shoot first point guard, like some of that stuff will fade and we're going to look up at the beginning of December and be like, wow, the Celtics are awesome and Kyrie is awesome and he's going to become one of the dominant stories of the year. But to me, the the Boston success is more a credit to two things. One, Brad Stevens is like the best coach in basketball and I don't think there's really much of a debate right now. <clears throat> I don't know. Did, did San Antonio Captain get Spurs contracted? Here. I know they got rid of their. No, I know they got rid of their WNBA team, but I didn't realize the Spurs got contracted too. I, is, Look, I must have missed that. All right, I slow down, Tiger. Let's say, slow let's down. say in-game coach. I think Brad Stevens is the best in-game coach in basketball, um, and you can see oh. it. Like his ability to integrate some of these new pieces and make it look seamless and make the defense come together. I mean, I I don't like when people give coaches too much credit and sort of slight the players. But I think in this case, like Stevens has been incredible and, and it's, it's crazy that this has looked so easy. Um, the other side of it though, and the side that I think is really important is that the Boston front office has stacked this team with like five or six guys who are six, eight and really athletic and fit perfectly with where, the league is going and it's it's given Stevens like the perfect tools to play with and they deserve credit for drafting well and sort of betting on some of these guys like Semi Ojale is a guy who is going to be useful uh Tatum and Jalen Brown like the Jalen Brown pick at three was pretty controversial when it happened and now looks pretty solid and Tatum is another guy who like if his if his three-point shooting sustains through the the year like he he projects as a potential star like maybe not a Paul Pierce guy but like more 
Chris Middleton, like rich man's Chris Middleton, rich man's Otto Porter, which is a really good player. And like, I just think that to me, it the the first month of the Celtics is not really about Kyrie and is more about Stevens and how how well that front office has played things over the last couple years. Yeah, I mean, there's not enough, a lot to kill them for. But let me ask you this: Golden State's got the number one offense in the league. Do you know who's number two right now? Um, no idea. Your Cleveland Cavaliers, the big <laughs> concern Cavaliers. Oh my God, the wheels are falling off. They don't even have Isaiah. They got like you know they're playing senior citizens through half the rotation. They've got the number two offense in the entire league, and they've got a bunch of quality wins every time uh, they play one of these teams. You know that's kind of a measuring stick game. Uh, they raise their level. Uh, and nobody can stop LeBron. So when we're looking at this question uh, from the emailer, I think we need to keep our focus on if it's Boston versus Cleveland in the conference finals or the second round, whenever they do face off, uh, I don't see the path for Boston yeah, at all. I think that's, that's a fair fair take. Um, let's move on to the Sixers and more thoughts on some rookies. Uh, Richard says... In your preseason predictions, I think it was Andrew who said you can bet your house on the Philly under. I didn't bet my house, but I did put $25 of my hard-earned Aussie dollars for them to win less than 40 and a half games. After taking out the Jazz, they have raced to 6-4 and four and are on a five-game winning streak. I am worried. They will also probably beat the Kings tonight, so it'll probably be like a six-game winning streak by the time this podcast goes up. Um... Richard, 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 <laughs> look, when it comes to gambling, betting, or debates, <laughs> let Andrew take his his side, wait until he gets really convinced about it and really works himself up for why he believes it, and then run the other no way. way. No actually, look, I'm kidding here because I was, I was with you on the under. Somehow Vegas knew more about Ben Simmons than we did. I think, to me, that's been the difference, right? Because Embiid's missed games here and there. They're awesome when he's on the court. We knew that. I don't think we anticipated Ben Simmons being this kind of guy who can be on the court uh, immediately and start impacting wins and losses from Dude, day one quite crazy. to this level. It's crazy. We'll talk about Ben Simmons in a second. I will just say that on that Sixers podcast, I added that this is why I'm glad I don't live near a casino because I would be stupid enough to go go to the casino and bet like $10,000 on the Sixers under. Don't come out here calling Richard stupid, Andrew. Come on. He's a, a diehard listener emailing no, in to openfloormail at gmail.com. $25 is fine. I was, got, I was ready to get reckless when I saw the Sixers number posted, but... Uh, yeah, it does. It does look good for the Sixers to somehow hit the over on that one. Although let's all knock on wood because it's the Sixers. Uh, but Ben Simmons, let's talk about it. Adam says, you guys are the first candle I light every day on my NBA podcast, Menorah, followed by Nate Duncan, (laughs) Danny LaRue and Zach Lowe. All of you guys use similar language to refer to Giannis and Ben Simmons and they seem like players out of a similar mold to me at face value. But both are huge and long, able to churn out points despite having no jumper or three-point stroke and use their size and vision to create excellent looks for teammates as point-forward facilitators. Why aren't more people in the NBA world drawing the comparison more explicitly between these two and identifying Giannis as the best-case version of what Simmons could grow into? 
What do you think, Ben? Well, I think primarily because Simmons's arms aren't going to grow like an extra six inches. Like, I think the only NBA guy who adds a wingspan over the course of his career is Deontay Murray, like we've mentioned. It seems like his arms grow every single year. But uh, I there are similarities. We do talk about them similarly. I think I want to go back to a comp that you made a long time ago. Didn't you at one point call him a 6'10 Rondo? Yes. Okay, that <laughs> occurred to me. It flashed into my mind this week because I saw him just tomahawk block some like runner or floater uh, into like the third row. I forget which game it was. It was one of their recent wins. And I, I was trying to, you know, trying to remember, did Rondo ever do anything quite like that? I don't remember uh, if Rondo first uh, of all, ever had those above the rim I block am not, shots. No, I am not going to let here, you besmirch Rajon Rondo's name here, okay? Peak Rondo did do stuff like that all the time. And a 6'10 no, version of Peak Rondo of would be fucking amazing, which is kind of what we're seeing with Ben Simmons. Oh, so you're going to stand by that comp? No, no, no. You're no, really... You know what? I am really glad that Adam asked this exact question because for a few different reasons. First of all, it's time for me to admit defeat on Ben Simmons. I am going to abandon some of the skepticism that I have harbored. Uh, (laughs) Whoa. And another story about something I wrote years ago. Um, Before the 2016 draft, there were there was like a rising tide of backlash against Ben Simmons in early March. And this happened just as the Milwaukee Bucks had begun to play Giannis a, as a point guard. And it was sort of like a revelation. He started putting up triple doubles every night in meaningless March games. No one knew exactly how real it was, whatever. And I, in a, it, as a way to sort of counter the backlash, I ended up writing about Ben Simmons through the Giannis lens and said, look, this is a blueprint for how Ben Simmons can succeed in the NBA. And this makes a lot of sense. And everyone should sort of chill out and see where this goes. Now, I wrote that and a couple things happened. First of all, the um, the response from like the scouting community was pretty skeptical. Like I, one of the Draft Express guys said, I don't see this comp at all. And uh, like Bobby Marks from the vertical came out on Twitter and was like, anyone who thinks this doesn't watch basketball. And so I was a little bit humbled because I was like, look, this is their job. So I'm going to uh, defer to the experts on this one. And maybe it's off base. And then by the same uh, by the same token, over the next month or two, like I began to talk to people who were like the Giannis comp doesn't work because of the length. And then, in addition, like there were just weird rumors coming out of LSU about how he handled himself there. And just there, there were like some character red flags that sort of pushed me toward Ben Simmons' skepticism. And none of that has been dispelled over the last two years until like the first month of the season when he's just been incredible and better than even like the believers would have expected. So, all of this is kind of like a crazy, it, like just a crazy turn of events. And it is is still kind of difficult to process. Yeah, I think uh, the major reason why people recoiled at the time, I believe, well, actually, I don't, I can't get inside their head, so I don't know. But if I 
were to have recoiled at the time, I would have just said, look, Ben Simmons's primary skill, put aside his body, put aside everything else, his primary skill is just unreal vision and feel. Yeah. You know, very rare vision and feel. And a guy like Giannis, even right now today, in the middle of like his third consecutive breakout season, probably has half or a third of Ben Simmons's feel. So I would say that is the biggest difference between the two of them, other than Giannis's, you know, length, uh, w- which you would obviously give him uh, the advantage for. So I still think it's not the world's greatest comp, but in terms of how you can use them as a lead playmaker, and uh, and a lot of people didn't really see that Giannis experiment working, by the way, even probably at the time when you were writing that article about Simmons. I think people were probably more skeptical than they are now about him really stepping into that role. Yeah. I think the game opening up, you know, teams going to more five outs, smaller lineups uh, helps. You basically just put the ball in the hands of your best player, regardless of who that is, and uh, let him go, you know, one on one and try to break a defense down. I think that's certainly played into it and in allowing them to have kind of similar success. Uh, but to me, Simmons is still more of the, you know, emphasis on point rather than forward. Whereas with Giannis, it's probably more emphasis on forward rather than point. Yeah. No, I, I think that is. Uh, a good way to explain it. Um, I think what's interesting though, and why the comp, why I still like the comp um, and uh, wish I hadn't abandoned it was, it is just that like this to me is a more convincing blueprint for how big guys are going to dominate in the small ball era. Like the unicorn thing. I I mean, (laughs) Porzingis is incredible. We established that on the most recent podcast, but like, it's just, it's kind of weird because like Towns is more dominant near the rim than he is like orbiting the three point line. Porzingis, the same deal. And like, I just think that this, the idea that these guys can sort of just crash the paint and cause problems and wreak havoc for defenses is, uh, it's pretty compelling. And like, uh, let's see where it goes. Let's see if there's another one after Ben Simmons, because this is also they're both Giannis and Ben Simmons are essentially like next generation versions of what LeBron has been. Um, albeit LeBron turned into a little bit of a better shooter, but like that sort of the guy who plays all five positions basically. And, uh, I think that's, more of where big men will will head than than the like orbiting the three-point line yeah and this brings it back to that 610 rondo comp because i think the assumption maybe that i made or the assumption i think a lot of people would make when you're saying that is hey he is a point guard who can't shoot who just happens to be really tall right and i think that overlooks the value of uh, size and you know versatility package on the defensive end which i think simmons has i mean like i said Flying above the rim for a block shot was not necessarily something that I expected from him out of his uh, rookie season. And that goes for just his overall defensive effectiveness. And he is the right size. I mean, you're mentioning a lot of these guys that Boston's accumulated in terms of, you know, multi-position guys. Simmons fits that same mold for Philadelphia, too. And that makes it easier to build good lineups around him. It makes it easier to have uh, your role players just stick in tightly defined roles. I mean, that versatility pays off in lots of different ways on both offense and defense. And I thought it was going to be pretty easy to build good lineups around him offensively, but I'm getting more and more convinced here early this season that it's going to be pretty easy to build, you know, effective defensive lineups that involve Simmons 
uh, going forward here for Philadelphia, too. Yeah, his defense has been better than expected. His offense has been better than expected. And I think everybody around the league is kind of blown away. And like Kyrie, like this is going to be something where like when the dust settles and we make it to Christmas, Ben Simmons is going to be one of the biggest stories of the season. Um, And I sincerely hope that no one, no listeners out there took our advice and took out a loan to bet the Sixers under because it is looking pretty good right now. Um, Let's finish up with a couple more questions and then hit the podium. Uh, Dennis says, just finished watching the OKC Kings game, and darn it, Ben is right. I'm not sold on OKC at all. While I love his intensity, Westbrook doesn't seem to have the highest IQ on the court. But isn't OKC's main problem the coaching? I never thought much of Scott Brooks, but is Billy Donovan much of an upgrade at all? Ben, this is becoming sort of a passion project for you. Uh, (laughs) Thunder skepticism, so give me your Billy Donovan take. Well, first of all, how funny was it this week? So uh, earlier this week on the podcast, I was going off about how OKC wasn't getting any criticism online. Everybody was focused on Cleveland. I think I spent the next three days waiting through OKC <laughs> criticism. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> the intelligentsia responded. It was fantastic. I, really, I feel like you're quarters... setting the agenda a little bit. Uh, no, I don't know about that, but it was great to see them go under the microscope because they deserved it. Like I said, uh, that Kings game was a train wreck. I mean, I could not turn away. It was so ugly. And even though it was basically Oklahoma City's worst game of the year, I mean, it's really, really bad. Uh, it was amazing how many things had to go wrong for them for Sacramento to pull out a win, which says a lot about Sacramento. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the coaching, look, last season, they kind of made a deal with the devil, right? They said, Westbrook, you can do everything. You know, we will get you this triple-double. We will build the whole thing around you. We don't care if you know everyone else is marginalized. It's your deal. It's hard to come back from that as a coach. You know, yeah, that's Imagine true. being like, hey, I gave you 100% of everything. Now I'm asking for like 80. I mean, that's a tough, tough situation. And uh, he's also dealing with players, uh, you know, Paul George and Carmelo Anthony, who are basically like trying to rewrite their roles on the fly. And both of them, to me, have struggled to do that early. Uh, and I don't think that those three guys particularly make each other better either. So, you know, even if you just like threw them, uh, you know, on a pickup court, I'm not sure they're the most complimentary players. So, He's got a lot of heavy lifting to do, and we have not really seen him do that kind of heavy lifting. I mean, they probably got out coached at times, uh, you know, when Durant was still there. And then last year, like I said, it was the deal with the devil. So he's had three totally different challenges during his three seasons there in Oklahoma City. Uh, Billy Donovan has. And we haven't seen a ton of creativity offensively. We saw what Kevin Durant's alter ego said on Kevin Durant's Twitter account about playing for <laughs> Billy Donovan. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and so I think to me, he falls more in that category of guys who you question their creativity from a system standpoint, and they just have nothing to turn back to when things are going wrong. I mean, that's really was the takeaway from the Kings game is when it got ugly or when it got tough, it was pound, 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 pull up jumper for Mello. Same thing from Paul George, turnovers from Westbrook. Yeah, uh, They revert to really bad habits. They don't have that Golden State or Boston or San Antonio type framework to save them when it gets dicey billy donovan to me he got a lot of mileage out of that spurs thunder series uh two years ago because 
there was a lot of skepticism about whether he was actually a good coach coming into that series. And then the Thunder, I think they lost game one, and then they just sort of blitzed the Spurs from there. And everybody was like, oh, my God, like Billy Donovan is the right coach. The Thunder could win a title. And then they went up 3-1 on the Warriors. And, like, he didn't catch enough heat for the second half of that Warriors series. And like you said, like, last year he was sort of, like, had carte blanche because everybody felt bad for the Thunder. But I think the skepticism is fair. And I'm surprised there haven't been more Billy Donovan to Louisville rumors. And I am interested to see whether that picks up. If, like, if the Thunder are still this miserable looking in February, uh, then Donovan's future is as uncertain as everyone else on that team. Yeah. And I think the same goes for Paul George and potentially Carmelo too, right? I mean, this is a short-term experiment. You look at the money involved. There's a lot of financial pressure if this doesn't turn into a success here, you know, quickly. And uh, you know, there there was some comments I think Paul George made. I forget <laughs> no, who he, he said this to. I'm cutting you off. I'm not going to let you get too deep into your Thunder skepticism. Okay, it's too early to go to go to start analyzing post game comments and everything. No, he, no. Here's what he said. He just said we have all season to figure this out. Yeah. Right. That was his comment. Do do they? That's my question. <laughs> yeah. Do they? Given how expensive they are. Given that he is potentially a flight risk, like if you're their front office, you have to make the decision on whether it's working or not before May. You know, you have to make that decision in early February. That's my only point. Yeah, and it'll be, I, I, everyone has presumed that Paul George is going to the Lakers if he hits free agency and leaves the Thunder, but man, that would be a fun wild card to throw into the mix if he said, I'm I'm out on OKC, but I'm not necessarily going to the, the Lakers either. Um, but we'll wait and see on that one. Uh, a couple more questions. Jeff says, I flipped the Clippers beating up on the Mavs last week and started chuckling to myself about this stiff, awkward-looking player on the Mavericks. It was garbage time, so I figured that was why he was on the court. But I was seriously wondering how this guy made it onto an NBA roster. After a minute, it dawned on me that it was Dirk Nowitzki, and my heart sank. What the heck happened to him? Um, I included this for two reasons. First of all, I was at Mavericks shoot-around, and I was trying to talk to Dirk, and our interview got delayed because he had a steroid test that he had to do, which I thought was hilarious, the idea of Dirk on steroids. And the other reason I included this is because later that night, Dirk went out and beat the Wizards and reminded us why this is going to be a Wizards-free podcast until Christmas Day. Yeah, uh, he needs to up his dosage if he's on. (laughs) (laughs) He's juicing. (laughs) Exactly. Whatever he's taking clearly isn't working, but it's fine. He gets to take a Kobe victory lap, you know, and he's been very low-key about everything. And if he wants to play... Like, the Mavericks aren't going to be good regardless. So just let Dirk live his best life. Yeah, and they're not even really playing him that much either. I mean, that's kind of the thing is the one difference between this situation and and the Lakers with Kobe where, you know, they're both bleak, but it's not like they're letting Dirk go out there and shoot 40 times a night, you know, or like 35 times a night. And, you know, they're not even necessarily always playing him during crunch time. So, uh, yes, he's slowing down, but I think it's it's – a healthy version. They just don't have very much else on that team. You know, I think Dirk's one problem for sure. And the fact that, uh, you know, you can't really move forward as an organization until he's gone is definitely a hangup. Yeah. 
uh, but they just don't have a lot. You know, you know, there's there's not much else there. You know, guys like Matthews and Harrison Barnes were kind of you know placeholder type moves when they made them. They're not you know difference makers uh, in any meaningful way. Okay, um, podium time. Michael Matz says, just out of curiosity, how many national parks have you visited? How many Taco Bell locations? I think I've clearly visited more Taco Bells than national parks. Uh, But I will say that my journey to the Hoover Dam with Gulliver this this past summer was delightful. And everyone's description of national parks on in the in the emails for with various NBA player comparisons have made them sound really attractive. I might need to make a trip to Utah at some point. Oh wow, we're we're reeling. You're them in, slowly guys. breaking me down. You're sl- my problem with national parks is that they're all difficult to get to. So you have to like fly into an airport, rent a car, and drive, and it, it, it's just like too complicated. I, like when I. If I'm going on vacation, I just want to go somewhere and just like chill for 10 days. Yeah, well, the real travel heads know that's not true, but we don't need to <laughs> fact check it. Uh, I'm actually surprised that you've been to so many Taco Bells, given that you act like you never see them, like they're Shangri-La or something. I mean, how many have you been to? I don't to? know. <laughs> Definitely more than the national. Like, I think I've only been to three or four national parks in my entire life. Um, but... I'd like to I'd like to make it to more national parks and more Taco Bells. So how about that? Uh, Ansi says, "What a what a <laughs> what a great goal!" I probably just for the quick record, I probably been to like maybe fifteen national parks. I would have to really go through and do a thorough count. Um, so to be determined, I'll bring the fascinating results back on a forthcoming episode. Okay, uh, Ansi says, "I had to email you guys because I just stumbled across a picture of Sharp, and I was shocked." I realized I'd never seen a picture of him, even though I've listened to basically all of your podcasts. Golliver I've seen on Twitter, since he has a proper profile pic going on. However, Sharp is doing this artsy, outdoors picture that only shows his lower body thing on Twitter. I always pictured Sharp looking like Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and it turns out he only looks like him a little bit. Uh, And then... He included a super awkward screenshot of a Sports Illustrated video. And basically, all you need to know is that I am getting roasted from Finland right now while Ben has secret (laughs) secret admirers who he's won over with spreadsheets. Uh, But sticking with the looks topic here, James says, recently, J.E. Skeets referred to Nikola Jokic as, I believe, Big Ben Golliver. Clearly, the looks comparison is spot on, but I think Golliver and Jokic are ideologically aligned in their approaches to their careers and lives. They're both world travelers. They clearly clash with pure bucket getters and frugally refuse to spend money at a barbershop. That being said, does Sharp have any NBA doppelgangers? First of all, I I, I don't know about this Jokic thing. He doesn't have kind of cross-eyed. I don't want to like knock him that badly, but... Is he a Dude, little I love the Jokic comparison. I had never put that together before, <laughs> but you look so similar. Uh, and and it's not even it's uh, not even a facial thing. I'm not trying to sit here and roast you, but you both have the kind of like slumped shoulder look sometimes, where like oh, you boy. both wish you were a couple inches shorter than you actually are, and uh, it's great. And you do. You're both worldly. You're both trying to just like. 
spread the love around. Um, I, I don't know. I like it. All right, all right. I, I think my eyes look out straighter than his. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna have that be the key distinction. Wait, didn't we say you look like Ron Baker, or did we? Did I? Did I make okay, that? Okay, so that's, this is why you should be, you should embrace the Jokic comparison <laughs> because looking like Jokic, okay. looking like a superstar, is pretty awesome. The two doppelgangers that I have acquired over the years. Um, Ron Baker, people have hit me up saying, oh my God, you look exactly <laughs> like Ron Baker. I don't like that. Uh, and then even worse, I'd say, is Omer Ashik in New Orleans. There are certain pictures of Omer no. Ashik that look exactly like me. And it's it's really strange. No. Uh, I don't know, man. Look, uh, you might border on pastiness occasionally, <laughs> but you're not. You're not I think Ashik. I am. I mean, don't on, underestimate my pastiness. Um all right, two more questions here. Cots B says, if you were taking Ben on a mandate in D.C., where would you take him hiking? Rock Creek Park, near the river, a winery in Virginia. Can your relationship handle the Billy Goat Trail after the Fantasy Pod? Um, oh, boy. What's the Billy Goat Trail? I don't really know what the Billy Goat Trail is. This is my problem here. Oh, my problem answering this question is the same problem I have with the National Parks question. Is like... I don't really love doing things like hiking and uh, I just, it's like not, not a hobby of mine. So I'm not really. Yeah. You're like, Hey, you're like, Hey, you want to check out my fantasy team results? <laughs> no. I'm just sitting on your couch. Like, sounds great. No. Let's do it. I want to go to Taco Bell. This will be so no, cool. No, man. Look, I'm not going to let you paint me with that brush either. But it's, the problem here is like, you don't really run, do you? No, I okay, don't. so I, what I like to do outdoorsy is to to run or bike. Do you bike? Uh, I'm actually really bad at bicycling. So I bought a bike a few years ago in, in, when I lived in Lake Oswego, which is like this really hilly neighborhood. Yeah. And I didn't totally consider the fact that I didn't have strong enough legs to go up the hills. So I got to the top of the hill and I was like, yes, this is going to be the best part. So then I turn around and I go back down. But like I hadn't ridden a bike in like 10 or 15 years. So you can guess exactly what I did, which I was leaning forward, slammed the brakes because I was going too fast. I went head over heels over the handlebar. Thankfully, I was wearing a bicycling helmet. Uh, I was cut up all over my arms and legs. Thankfully, no one saw me. That was the key (laughs) aspect of this conversation (laughs) because like two weeks before that, for whatever reason, I was like trying to power walk around a mom with a stroller and just ate it. It just like went like, for whatever reason, I tripped on like a sprinkler or whatever and just fell down right in front of her stroller. It took me a few years to get over that experience in terms of uh, public embarrassment. Thankfully, no one saw the bicycle accident, but I did end up like having to push the bike home because I was like too injured to ride it, bleeding from like four different places. So no, <laughs> so, I don't bike. So that was the end of your biking career. Uh, that's tough. I love I love to ride bikes. When I lived in LA, a similar sad story is like, my favorite part about living in LA was being able to bike along the beach. And I got to do it for about three weeks before my bike was stolen from the garage underneath my apartment. And so that was the end of my my West Coast biking tour. But if I were taking Ben on a mandate in D.C., I would take him along the trail on the Potomac River and we would not bike. We would not run, but we would walk and enjoy the view of the monuments. And we you get to go over the Memorial Bridge and hit the Lincoln Memorial. It's a it's a pretty nice 
outdoors activity. It gets a little busy in the spring, but that would be my preferred move. Good call. We are matches on travel Tinder. I was going to suggest the Lincoln <laughs> Memorial. Um, Good. That's one of my favorite places. I've actually been to DC a lot, though. It's not like you need to show me the city. I, I do like the monuments. That's usually what I go for. Um, so, All right. Yeah. Good job. Casey says, recently I took to I took a trip to the Beasley Dispensary, and upon listening and reflecting on the Giannis Vision Quest, I stumbled upon a Vision Quest of my own. I began thinking about Ben as this wandering NBA writer who has been arduously searching for basketball enlightenment. I visualized Ben in rugged robes and a Spurs headband trekking through Death Valley one fateful (laughs) night when he got lost and unbeknownst to him, he magically gained the gift of foresight while wandering amongst the stars in the dead of night. He was only saved that night because he found an abandoned drone and rode it back to civilization like a magic carpet. Upon his return, he came back to the world transformed and on a quest to fulfill his true calling by leading the NBA to our new overlord, Giannis. After my vision quest, I was convinced that the only title we can give Ben when he goes into his enlightened NBA sermons and sharp zones out like a kid stuck at church is the Gali Lama. Um, I just want to say that I had waited to read that email in part because this podcast and the emails that we get at openfloormail at gmail.com already feed Gulliver's ego enough as it is. And we, we really don't need him to start referring to himself as the golly llama in his pedantic text message to me about the, about the thunder every night. (laughs) But, uh, it was a great, a great story there. That was the most impressive and deepest work of open floor fan fiction I think we've got from every anyone. <laughs> uh, one thing I've noticed, Andrew, lately, we've been getting a lot of people telling us how high they are when they email it. <laughs> yeah. That seems like that's been a recurring theme. <laughs> uh, we don't advocate that for the younger listeners, especially. Don't break any laws while you're listening to our Look, podcast. Look, man, please, guys. Kyrie is going to win but, MVP this year. It's all good. If you have questions, concerns, fan fiction, uh, travel tinder date ideas send them openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com five star reviews on apple podcast casey thank you for taking on us on that quest with you andrew <laughs> thanks for the conversation i'll talk to you all next right week. Man, talk to you soon another great edition of open floor is in the books did you know locked on has a daily podcast for all 30 nba teams if you're a lakers fan search locked on lakers a celtics fan search locked on celtics Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.